Today on Ag News Daily. It is a standalone payment limitation, so it is not tied to a payment limit that maybe uh, a producer had been exposed to in, in, in CFAP 1 or really any other uh, FSA or federal programs. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Thursday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Had to think about that for a second there, but Delaney Howell joined today by Ashton Carr. Ashton, I am excited. I'm going to a pumpkin festival this weekend. I think I mentioned that on the podcast yesterday, but to be honest, my memory is lacking me, and I think that's a sign that I'm getting old. I honestly think that everyone's memory is lacking them lately. It's just <laughs> such a jumbled up, weird that's place true. that we're all in. So I honestly had to think about what day it was as well. Yeah, I, th- I suppose that's true. Also, if you're working from home or, you know, farmers, this doesn't really apply. But if you work in the agribusiness industry and you've been working from home, that probably affects your days. What is today? I don't know. I'm working from home. They're all the same day. Yes, I definitely agree. And I'm still in school, so I have to kind of keep on track about what day <laughs> yeah. to go to school. But I, it just, it leaves me, I think, every day. Yes, I agree. I agree. I always have to wake up in the morning and think, what day is today? But anyways, it is Thursday, and we've got some news to talk about on this Thursday. Before we get to talking CFAP 2 with Administrator Richard Fordyce, Ash and I want to kick things off here to chat about our nation's corn and soybean crop. Because of course, as we reported earlier this week, we are in full harvest mode. But we're also still seeing folks reporting some issues issues with their corn and soybean crop. And for this week's weekly drought monitor, of course, uh, for the week ending September 22nd, we saw that U.S. corn crops in a drought area notched up a percentage point to about 24% of our nation's country. And soybeans also rose from 16 to 18% uh, higher. We also saw winter wheat showing about 26% of the areas planting winter wheat are in a drought area as well. So not a huge portion of our country, but definitely still something to keep an eye on here as the markets continue to react to harvest news coming out of the fields. Absolutely, Delaney. And I have a bit of crop news myself, but it's not concerning crop numbers and it is concerning cotton. The U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol has launched a new grower recruitment program, or not program, but a campaign rather. The campaign is a new standard for verifying the sustainability progress of U.S. cotton. The group says consumers demand eco-friendly products and enrolling in the trust protocol will help growers ensure markets for their cotton by verifiably demonstrating the sustainability record of American cotton in the global market. Gary Adams, who is the president of the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol, says the program is something no other cotton-producing nation does today. And by joining the Trust Protocol, growers will now be able to better document their current sustainability programs using a quantifiable digital platform, and that data is assessed and verified by a third-party audit. And the Trust Protocol will be hosting a live webinar session for those who are interested in discussing more about the importance of grower participation, as well as a step-by-step of how to enroll. And those sessions will begin on September 29th, which I believe is next Tuesday. And growers can access the full schedule of webinars at the link or on their website to learn more about the Trust Protocol. But it was very interesting, especially being down here in really cotton country. Mm -hmm. So as I'm seeing more cotton bulbs really coming 
coming to fruition, it was really nice to learn about this sustainability program. Yeah, I'm excited for you to get out there and snap some pictures and videos of cotton harvest when that time rolls around. But Ashton, as I mentioned, we're talking to Administrator Fordyce today about the CFAP 2 payments that are coming. And I wish I had this piece of news. We recorded the interview before we recorded today's podcast. I wish I would have had this piece of news to ask him a little bit more about it. But we saw a former chief economist for the USDA, Joel Glo- Joe Glober, has warned the USDA and administration that this latest round of CFAT payments could actually be a detriment when we look at the world trading scene and has potentially been just that. We've seen uh, about 10 different countries all raised concerns to the WTO that the U.S. is causing an international market distortion because we've been giving so much aid to our U.S. farmers. The WTO cap for Amber box subsidies, which I need to do a little digging and figure out what that exactly refers to. But I'm assuming it's those commodities traded on the national or on the international level. But anyways, that that cap is typically around 19.1 billion dollars, and we've spent quite a bit more than 19.1 billion dollars within the past year on different subsidies and in program aid programs here for our U.S. farmers. So what does this mean? I suppose the potential is that we could see a WTO suit filed, a complaint. I'm sure that's not out of the question at this point, but something else to just keep in mind as we uh, continue to watch what's happening here with CFAP2 and with the CCC funding, which as Administrator Fordyce mentions, has been passed in the House, but not yet in the Senate. Yeah, that's definitely interesting, Delaney. And I haven't really thought about what other countries are doing to help their farmers. I've really just trying to be concerned about what our government is doing with CFAP and other funds to support, you know, producers. And so it's that kind of perks my ears up to to do a little bit more research about what other countries are mm-hmm. doing. Well, right. And, you know, just thinking about it, I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize, but the WTO does have certain parameters about how much you, how much aid or subsidy money you can provide domestically for your farmers. So there is a little bit of uh, some discrepancy there. Yeah, that is definitely not something that has been on my mind with the coronavirus pandemic going on. But one thing that has been on my mind is I've been following along with companies who are trying to go to zero emissions. And I've been talking about Cargill and their carbon sequestration and just trying to pay attention to those companies are, that are trying to go to net carbon zero. But Walmart has come out and said that they plan to achieve zero emissions across the company's global operations by 2040. The retailer says it will reach zero emissions without the use of carbon offsets by powering its facilities with 100% renewable energy by 2035 and using electric vehicles by 2040 and using low-impact refrigerants for cooling and electrified equipment for heating by 2040. Walmart and the Walmart Foundation will also help protect, manage, or restore at least 50 million acres of land and 1 million square miles of ocean by 2030. Walmart President and CEO Doug McMillian says they want to play an important role in transforming the world's supply chain to be regenerative. He says efforts to decarbonize Walmart's global operation put it on the path to become 
becoming a regenerative company. And I feel like I've been talking about regenerative has been something that's really just kind of floated through the air for the past two or three weeks or so. And so I guess it's it's nice to hear that companies and, and other individuals are trying to be more impactful on regenerative agriculture and just regenerative companies or supply chains. Well, yeah, I think it's definitely something that is not going away, you know, especially as we see consumers getting more and more involved in agriculture. So definitely something that uh, we'll have to continue covering here on the podcast. But I have just one other piece of news here before we chat markets. South Korea has been in a negotiating phase with the administration since about last November to negotiate purchases of U.S. rice. Well, it seems South Korea has finally filled the quota pledge to the United States, and the country is getting close to meeting that promise for 2020. So I know we uh, don't have a lot of rice up here in Iowa, but we do in a lot of southern parts of the country. And this is, you know, a, a good announcement for rice producers, especially seeing South Korea announce a new tender as of Wednesday night with a purchase of 96,000, just over 96,000 metric tons of U.S. rice worth about $90 million, according to the USA Rice Federation. So continuing to do some business there with South South Korea, and uh, definitely looking to open the door for further trade with them in the future. But with that news, Ash, and I tell you what, I am all out of news for the day other than chatting commodity markets. What do you say? Should we uh, pull this Band-Aid off? Yes, I am ready to pull that Band-Aid off slow and steady, Delaney. Yeah, so am I, because we still continue to see a little bit of pullback here in corn and soybeans. The December corn contract pulled back five cents a day to end at 363 and a half, while the March down five and a quarter cent to end at 372 and a quarter. In soybeans, the November soybean put pulled back 14 and a half cents to close at $10 on the nose, while the January giving up 15 and a half cents to close at 1003 and a quarter. Wheat had a mixed day today as the December contract ended up just three quarters of a cent to close at 549 and three quarters, while the March ended flat to close at 557 on the nose. In the livestock pits, green across the screen is the October live cattle contract added 87 and a half cents to close at 802 and a half. The December up a dollar 07 to close at 112.27. In the feeder cattle pits, the September contract up 45 cents today to close at 142.45, while the October, well, the November, excuse me, added 70 cents to close at 142.35 and a half. In the lean hog pits, the October contract shed two cents today to close at 69.47, while the December lost a dollar oh seven and a half to close at 63.27 and a half. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures, the October contract shedding 35 cents today to close at 18.10, while the November down 13 to close at 18.04. Without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation with FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce. We are chatting today with Administrator Richard Fordyce to chat about the CFAP2 program that we announced on the podcast earlier this week, as well as a couple other issues of impacting rural America. Administrator Fordyce, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It's always good to be with you. 
it absolutely we appreciate you coming on again. I believe we've had you on in the past, maybe in fact, even to talk about CFAP. But as you well know, I'm sure you've been briefed on it and having lots of meetings about it. Can you bring us up to speed on this new CFAP 2? What can producers expect from this? So, yeah, um, so CFAP2 um, is, is in response, obviously, to the coronavirus um, pandemic. And, and, and you're, you, are, you are right, Delaney. I think I, think I was on with you all uh, a few months ago, weeks ago, maybe, um, to talk about CFAP1. And, you know, uh, for the folks listening to the podcast, it is um, CFAP1 uh, was was uh, was a program that engaged with agricultural producers to help offset some of the losses uh, resulting from uh, from the coronavirus pandemic, primarily in quarter one of twenty of two thousand and twenty. Uh, CFAP two builds kind of builds on the CFAP one program. Uh, in some ways, it's similar. In some ways, it's actually quite different. But it but it's still. You know, the, the main motivation of CFAP2 is to provide assistance um, to agricultural producers that have been impacted by, by coronavirus. So CFAP2 is being funded uh, um, to, the, to the tune of about 14, approximately $14 billion. And um, while CFAP1 looked at losses in quarter one, CFAP2 looks on beyond that, uh, in some cases, depending on what category we're in, out into July. And so, and in some cases, even beyond that. So, um, so the CFAP2 program is, is more robust, I guess, if you, could, if you could use that as a way to describe it, in that there are more commodities included. Um, you know, a lot of things that maybe were not included in CFAP1 from a commodity standpoint, uh, are in CFAP2. Um, we have three primary categories. One is the sales commodities, and those um, those include specialty crops, um, tobacco, aquaculture. Uh, the second category is the price trigger category um, for commodities, and that includes our row crops, um, uh, major livestock um, species, and dairy. And basically, those are major commodities that meet a minimum of 5% price decline from January through July. And then our final category is flat rate row crops. Um, you know, and so those, that, that group of commodities would be commodities that either did not meet or we couldn't, we couldn't um, generate the data to support um, a 5% price decline or that it's potentially um, commodities that have relatively small acreages across the country. Um, so that's the three categories. Let me go back up to the sales commodities category. So, so if you're not in a, you know, a major row crop, uh, major livestock species, dairy, um, or one of these flat rate crops, likely you are included in the sales commodities category. Um, we, there are some exclusions, and we can talk about those as well that are not in not included in CFAP two. But the sales commodities approach is going to be, we're going to ask producers for their 2019 sales of a commodity. So uh, the commodity prior to any value added to it, any processing, any packaging, um, and, and the sales for those 2019 commodities. And then we're going to pay a percentage of the, of the 2019 sales. And it is, there's five gradations um, in the sales commodities category. 
And it's around 10% of what your sales were in, in 2019. Some a little above 10%, some just a tick below 10%, but it would probably average or out around 10% um, in that sales commodities category. So for sales commodities, are you talking like our corn, soybean, wheat folks, are, are that's going to be 10% of what they produced in 2019 is what they'll be getting here in the CFAP too, or that's how their payment rate is determined? No. Um, so corn, soybeans are going to be in that price trigger category. Okay. Yes. Um, gotcha. And so in that category, we're going to, um, we're going to take uh, your 2020 uh, planted acres as, as derived from an acreage report. Um, your APH, so your individual uh, producer-specific APH, uh, and then a payment rate, and then a percentage of what has historically been marketed. Um, and that's how, um, that's how we're going to take care of, uh, of, of corn, soybeans and other, other row crops. Gotcha. Okay. And so then for the initial CFAP one payment, was that also based on the same calculation, the same trigger rate as you called it? So the rates are different. Um, the rates are a little different and it's, it's a little bit of a different methodology and CFAP one, um, we looked at 2000 because we're, we were looking at the first quarter, right? So there really were no row crops that were in production at that time. And so we looked at 2019 um, production and what was eligible would have been half of your 2019 production um, and anything. So that would be the maximum that you would have qualified for. And then anything that had not been sold prior to uh, prior to January 15th, um, was, would, would, would qualify under CFAP 1. CFAP 2, we're actually looking at the 2020 crop um, and, uh, and what was planted in 2020, again, based on, uh, based on an acreage report that that producer would have submitted to FSA. So, Administrator Fordyce, I want to take things over to the payment structure because with CFAP 1, it was that initial 80% that producers were getting followed by the 20%. So, is this going to be the same payment structure in CFAP 2? So, so you're right. We did factor, um, we did factor CFAP 1 um, at 80%. And then, you know, fairly well into the program sign up, we, we determined we'd be able to make that additional 20% payment. CFAP two is not going to be factored. Um, you know, the payment that the producer is eligible for, depending on what, you know, depending on what commodities, um, you know, uh, he or she has, um, we're going to pay 100% of that eligible payment. And can you shed some clarity on what the livestock prices will be? I've seen some rumors floating around on social media and otherwhere, and I just want to clear those up. You know, absolutely. So, um, so in the livestock category, so we're we're talking about um, uh, beef cattle, hogs and pigs, uh, and lambs and sheep. Um, we're going to pay on an inventory number. So. Um, so the producer will select uh, select a number of head on on, on a certain date um, that uh, that reflects their inventory. And for beef cattle, uh, and these are just um, uh, breeding stock is not included. So, and the definition of breeding stock, and I'll use cattle as an example, um, it would be cows that have had a calf um, or bulls that have been exposed to a herd. 
If it is a bred heifer and she has not calved yet, that is still a market animal. If it is a young bull um, that is, you know, that is being raised to be a bull, but has not been exposed to, uh, um, uh, to, to cows, then that is also not classified as a breeding animal. But beef cattle, um, based on that inventory number of market, market type cattle is $55 a head. Hogs and, and pigs, again, um, boars and sows would be out um, because they would be breeding animals. Um, hogs and pigs is $23 a head. And then lambs and sheep, again, rams and ewes would be out because they'd be classified as, as breeding animals. Um, they would be paid at a rate of $27 per head. Gotcha. Okay, that definitely clears things up. Ashton, I know you had a great question about payment limits that we discussed earlier. Can you ask that now? Yeah, so I was just interested to know with this $14 billion that's going into CFAP2, how payment limitations are are going to be because with CFAP1, I believe it was 250000 was the limit per producer. Is that correct? So, um, so for an individual producer, yes, that was correct. 250000 If you were a corporation, an LLC, um, and you had a business structure that had uh, multiple uh, members in that business structure, uh, producers could qualify up to three payment limitations of 250000 to bring the total for an entity, if it was so structured, um, to $750,000. We're going to do, uh, we're gonna do a, a, something um, the same with CFAP2. And it is, a, it is a standalone payment limitation, so it is not tied to a payment limit that maybe uh, a producer had been exposed to in, in, in CFAP 1 or really any other uh, FSA or federal program. So the CFAP 2 payment limit is a unique payment limit to this program. And we also will be applying um, the up to three payment limits um, for entities that have, uh, have a membership structure um, of three members. Um, so, um, so it's, it's very similar. We did also, so, so in CFAP one, we had corporations, LLCs, other business entity structures that had multiple uh, members. And in CFAP two, we have added, uh, estates and trusts and, and they will be viewed in the same way. So Administrator Fordyce, I had one other question because I think it gets a little confusing when we talk about CFAP, then we talk about things like market facilitation payment programs, and then we add into the mix the CCC fund. Um, is our, our payments like CFAP funded by the CCC fund? And second part to that question is with the passage of some additional funding here, I know we're kind of still waiting to see what happens with that, but is there any chance that another fund could come later or, or more funds will come later with that passage of CCC dollars allocated? So you're right. CCC can be complicated um, at times. And so I'll add some additional complexity. Um, so the CFAP1 program uh, was funded um, from two different sources. Um, one source came from the CARES Act, in which the CARES Act identified $9.5 billion that would go towards support for agriculture and agricultural producers that were impacted by, uh, by coronavirus. And then uh, our secretary, Secretary Purdue, um, you know, was able to also uh, bring in from CCC, the Commodity Credit Corporation, $6.5 billion 
um, you know, to bring the total uh, the total uh, fund for CFAP one to sixteen billion. CFAP two is funded um, almost exclusively with CCC money, so the fourteen billion um, is CCC funding. You did mention, um, you know, some some legislation that's being um, discussed and was passed by the House um, to, uh, to to replenish CCC. Um, obviously, that's not finalized. Senate still needs to weigh in on that and, and get a final uh, kind of final approval, um, you know, and, and to get that passed. But um, so we use CCC to pay. Um, you know, ARC PLC payments, CRP rental payments. Um, we also use CCC money um, to fund our marketing assistance loans program. So, so it's, it's used to make payments. It's used to facilitate loans. So CCC is really used a lot um, by FSA, a lot of programs that utilize that. So, um, you know, so we're anxious to see what, you know, what ultimately happens you know, it was great news that, you know, that the House included uh, replenishment for CCC, um, you know, in, in their part of the package. And again, we're just waiting to see, you know, what happens from the Senate's perspective and, and what ultimately is agreed upon. Although these conversations are very complex, I think it's definitely beneficial for us to stay on top of them and, and have these kinds of discussions. So FSA Administrator Fordyce, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and answering our questions today. Absolutely. Always glad, uh, always glad to be on. And, and, and as, as usual, if you need anything else, certainly reach out and we'd be glad to come on with you again. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. Almost every farm shop that I have been to has a very well-stocked toolbox, but I have rarely seen a set of pin gauges. What is a pin gauge, you ask? Consider it a feeler gauge for a round hole. Made to incremental dimensions, you can buy a basic set for under $75. Once you make this investment, you can quickly and accurately measure a round hole. Just find the gauge that when installed creates a slight drag all around it, and that is the dimension of the orifice. No more guessing at the size of hydraulic fittings and valves, carburetor parts, sprayer tips, and more. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Please visit farmmachinerydigest.com for more helpful hints and technical articles where steel and soil meet. Willie really Ginnabig, thank you there to Administrator Fordyce. I tell you what, Ashton, there's a lot of moving pieces when it comes to things going on in Washington, D.C., but I think he did a good job of trying to fill us all in on what's going on and how things are affected and where money is being allocated from and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, um, like Administrator Fordyce said, it's it's pretty complicated, and I enjoy having these kinds of conversations so I can try and understand as much as possible and trying to help our listeners understand as well, which is something that we are always striving to do here on the Ag News Daily podcast. And you can go back and listen to past and future episodes on the Ag News Daily website at agnewsdaily.com and follow along with us on social media while you're at it at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.